Welcome to Wise Brussels Voices and the fifth and final episode of our series, What's Next for NATO in a Digital Age? This series is part of a project run by Wise Brussels with Wise France, Wise London and Wise DC with the support of the US mission to NATO. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the following conversations were conducted remotely, resulting in sometimes unequal sound quality. All the papers discussed in this series are available online at wise-brussels.org. With the four previous episodes, you discover our WISE initiative and have the opportunity to listen to each laureate on their respective paper. To conclude this podcast series, we wanted to bring the free policy brief to external person in order to collect their opinion on it, especially to discuss around our laureate recommendation. So I address a warm thanks to the WISE Brussels team and especially Terry Schultz, experienced journalist and member of the steering committee, for managing to interview these high-level stakeholders. In this episode, you will hear from official from the US mission to NATO, Norway, as well as NATO Communication and Information Agency. Let's start with Gabriel and Natka paper on China, on which Tracy Newell, Deputy Political Counselor at the US mission to NATO in Brussels, exposed her first overall feedback. What I liked the most is, you know, even within a bureaucracy, you know, people can get siloed. And I liked that it was very broad. I mean, they reached out and researched, uh, you know, what the commands are doing, um, what all of the different divisions should be looking at. I, I, that was very useful for me. Since Gabrielle and Natka paper are like challenge raised by China, she explained how this current conversation is quite fast evolving and getting even more important since the COVID-19 pandemic. It has been a conversation that's been quickly evolving. And I think that we are even seeing, you know, since the pandemic, we've seen a lot of allies that have become more aware of the challenges that China poses to the alliance and, and to each nation. Moreover, the challenge raised by China growing influence on certain strategic assets in allied countries is now in chase by the perspective of pandemic impact on European economies. So how NATO can assess these aspects and China policy during the pandemic when China offer help and support to certain European allies country regarding medical equipment supplying? Does it alarm her? I do. And just like the broader challenges, this is something that NATO is now actively looking at. And uh, we take it from a very specific angle. And I, I think the paper touches on this a little bit, but just to drill down more specifically. Um, and this goes back to the Allies Article 5 commitment. You know, an attack on one is attack on all. And so we look at decisions, even, even if they're really national decisions, these investment decisions are national decisions. But uh, here at NATO, we look at them as what impact do they have on on transatlantic security. And that's been something that we've been discussing actively now. Then the discussion continue on one aspect mentioned in the paper, that China is taking on its advantage the fact that NATO as a military alliance doesn't have the legacy to regulate economical issue. NATO is not an enforcement body. That's pretty obvious. Going back to this Article 5 commitment, we have everybody who has a commitment to be as resilient as they can because we all have collective defense obligations. And through that, we actually have had a very robust conversation. It's not; It wasn't China-specific, but on resilience, on national resilience. But that got into 
foreign ownership, foreign control, uh, looking at what allies can do from a national standpoint to strengthen their investment screening mechanisms. I mean, the EU has has really advanced this conversation, I think, in the last 12 months. But because, you know, not all of us are EU members, <laughs> it's important to have that conversation here. Tracy Newman, go beyond and explain us the NATO focus on forcing investments in critical infrastructure and highlights the importance of coordination with the European Union. We've been following pretty closely the, the EU decisions. I mean, they have the 5G toolbox. They have the, yes, the strengthened investment screening. And I, I think that's very helpful. Um, and, and they've also, you know, most recently they had their, their own China summit where they, you know, demanded reciprocity so that China would look at them. I mean, that would be more from an economic standpoint, but they, but they publicly, you know, are demanding more from China. That's helpful for us. As you know, it's quite obvious that discussing China challenges bring 5G topics to the table quite quickly. Our Tracy perceived the U.S. push to encourage China to be more transparent regarding 5G technology. I definitely, uh, along with the overall conversation here on China over the last 18 months, we've definitely seen the attitudes and the conversation in general move on 5G. Uh, that's for sure, and you've seen it in all of the and in different allied capitals. Um, that conversation is also happening with a focus towards national resilience and what effects having um, malign actors in an allied telecommunications network, what, what effects that could have on transatlantic security. We, we've been pleased with how we've seen that conversation move. Yet, Tracy Newman does not fully agree on one statement of Gabriel and Nalka paper that Beijing view NATO as a stumbling block to this global ambition. I remember seeing that. I thought that was a little bit bold because that to me has this tinge of offense, which, you know, NATO is always focused on deterrence and defense. I think NATO is useful with its consensus and the way that we can collaborate with a lot of important nations, a lot of Western nations. Um, the conversations we have here will affect decisions made in capitals. So I guess I see it as a as a softer role than that. <laughs> She reacts as well on another paper statement that I'd like China willing to weak links between allies and moderately the West. I mean, from the standpoint of the United States, we absolutely view, view China as a competitor um, and, and someone who's looking to weaken Western unity. I can just give you what, what we think of from the United States, and which is why we have pushed the conversation here at NATO, um, because we do have to look at those challenges that they pose and respond. I would say that we are doing internally what we need to be doing on China right now. And uh, the conversation has evolved even since the leaders meeting in December. And we've actually taken up a lot of these points that are that are discussed in the paper. Um, issues on military mobility, FDI, working with uh, ACT. Um, in Norfolk uh, to see what we can look at uh, in terms of the challenges that could be coming from AI and other technologies. As Gabrielle and Nadka paper on podcast episode lighted, Tracy Newman elaborates on the current dialogue with Pacific partners of the alliance. One of my jobs here is to focus on all of the partners that NATO has, and it's been very refreshing to see how many conversations we have with With the, the, we call them the, the, the plus four in uh, you know the East Asia Indo-Pacific region, so Korea, Japan, New Zealand, and Australia. But they regularly brief, uh, you know, the North Atlantic Council, the most senior committee, and then also subordinate committees um, on a range of issues that matter to transatlantic security. I mean, we'll talk about exercises 
in the East. Uh, they've come in to talk about DPRK, but not just China. Tracy further discussed how Ally managed their relationship with these Pacific partners. I think they've actually taken it up as an opportunity as we've begun to face these other challenges. And I think that allies have done a good job of taking up that opportunity. And partners have been willing to support us. And it's it, it's been a good relationship. I mean, for the first time, the Australian defense minister uh, participated in the defense ministerial a few months ago. So I, th I think that's a good first step. Terry and Tracy conclude the conversation on Gabriel and Natkar suggestion on EU NATO coordination on advanced technology, such as artificial intelligence. Indeed, the author suggests an interesting way forward with the establishment of an AI center of excellence. This is still a bureaucracy, so things move uh, not as quickly as probably everybody would want, but I think that's a great idea. We have a few different groups, um, you know, emerging technologies groups internally in NATO, and that's something that they would be looking at in the near future. And the hybrid, the hybrid center of excellence has been tremendously helpful in informing our conversations here. <music> On our side, Vice Admiral Wiz Denigan, Norway permanent representative in NATO Military Committee, discussed with Terry about artificial intelligence paper and its angle that NATO and EU should catch up on artificial intelligence. First of all, Terry, I would say thank you for the invitation, and I'm uh, I'm really impressed um, by the wise. Uh, I think this is so needed to have a um, network between women and also to uh, to get some attention to the security sector because it's a sector that is really dominated by men. So, what part of the paper was the most compelling according to her? It needs greater understanding. Not only greater understanding of how data feeds AI and machine learning, but also understanding how artificial intelligence and machine learning already is transforming NATO and the EU. And frankly, also all of us in our daily lives. Like social media, that's a great example. And what we watch online, what we like, which news we focus on, etc. That is at all times being used in multiple ways to better target commercial interests and products our way. And that is kind of scary also. But you know, the same technology could be used into tailored training and education to our individual needs. And it can design learning tools If a person struggles with understanding uh, in the educational level, maybe because the level is too high, the person will lose interest. And the same thing could be if the uh, level is too basic. So when it comes to education, adapting the education into the individual, that is what we call the proximal zone. The conversation then addressed AI advancements issue, highlighting Carolan and Kulani papers. And I bring back to the differences on this matter between NATO and the EU. When it comes to the paper, I think, first of all, uh, it is extremely important to separate between the NATO and the EU. Because, as you know, NATO is a political and military alliance. And NATO's purpose is to guarantee the freedom and security of our members through political and military means. EU, on the other side, is a unique economic and a political union and has democratic institutions with a mandate to make laws and regulations that will affect all of its member states. But NATO cannot do that to direct in the same way. We are a consensus organization. So uh, uh, when it comes to what the 
individual state or nation actually invests in. That's an individual, that's a national question. On the other hand, how the Norway representative, representative in NATO military committee assess the level of EU-NATO cooperation on AI? I think it's on the agenda, but again, I agree with you, it could be more. But you know, that has to do with how NATO is organized. Uh, and we have a science and uh, technology organization, and they are already looking into several aspects of uh, AI, both as a threat, but also where the technology could be very beneficial. For instance, in um, assisting decision-making on various levels, providing greater situational awareness by evaluating huge volumes of data from pictures and videos, or assisting in training and education soldiers and leaders throughout their careers. And I also would like to bring your attention over to the work strand that we are working with on a daily basis here, and that's NATO warfighting capstone concepts. You know, that's the um, kind of strategy for NATO to look ahead. And that will include, and is including already, NATO's focus on artificial intelligence both today, but also 20 years into the future. That's quite exciting. And the work is done from Norfolk, Virginia. Later on, Vice Merrill addressed the sensitive topic of trust in system run by AI. Whenever information is brought forward from a colleague or from another organization, you always need to verify the information. And I think that the standards, when it comes to making sure that things are correct, are even higher in the military. The discussion moved quickly to risk related to application and integration of AI, especially regarding the exposure risk induced by data collection. We have to be extremely conscious when it comes to that. And then again, the need for greater understanding, uh, both on the opportunities, but also, and first and foremost, on the risks uh, that has to be put on the agenda, because things are moving so fast now. So uh, I think that there is a great need for education and there are, uh, there is a great need for discussions uh, on this theme because it, it hits us every day, every second. And considering her experience in military education, she insists on this rule regarding action of soldiers on their own data. It comes down to basic, you know, where are you bringing your phone? Who can see you? Think about a soldier, you know, being deployed to the other side of the world, bringing their phone and, you know, uh, one night you're probably, you know, longing home and then it's easy to think, well, I'll just make one phone call and nobody can see me and I, it's okay for me to do that. Without, you know, um, thinking about that single phone call, you know, could uh, bring the whole uh, division at risk. So this is extremely important. Terry and Vice-Amiral Dedekin come back to another recommendation of the paper the adaptation of deterrent strategy to digital aid. At least uh, NATO is, uh, is moving in that direction. And uh, only last week, you know, the NAC approved the concept of uh, deterring and defense of Euro-Atlantic area, the DDA uh, concept. And, you know, that's a milestone for NATO because we haven't done such a great concept or a strategic consensus uh, ever since, if I'm not mistaken, since 1967. The cyber is at all times very, very high on the agenda. But it's very, it's a tricky one, you know, because um, when it comes to nations and uh, how NATO is founded with the Article 5, 
So when it comes to the definition of threat, this is a really, really tricky question. Of course, Terry was interesting to elaborate on how trust building in AR rely as well on protection of private citizens' rights, asking device mail if nowhere is looking closely to this issue. Yes, we are, but there are tough discussions also. So uh, we had a law on the intelligence sector that was approved finally. But I can tell you that the discussions, they were high and um, it was a very, very difficult, you know, to actually get understanding of how important it is to uh, for our intelligence service to protect us. But that was, you know, um, at the same time when other people, they were talking about individual rights. So um, the correct answer on these big questions, I'm not the one to say, but I'm at the same time extremely happy that uh, that law was passed. She concluded on certain perspective on how NATO prioritizes its approach regarding artificial intelligence. Well, I think, again, well, you know, the, all the work with this NATO warfighting capstone uh, concept. So we're talking about this, Terry. Um, and, you know, just having 30 nations with their collective resources and input, that is a great plus. And that is the best thing about NATO. To conclude this overlook on paper, I'm pleased to introduce Kevin Scheid, General Manager at NCIA, the NATO Communication and Information Agency, who looked carefully at Isabel and Clotilde's paper on 5G. We spend a lot of time thinking about how NATO, and in particular the NATO Communications and Information Agency, can help nations, NATO nations, come together and solve problems. And 5G is a, is a challenge that the nations are all facing. And I found this paper to be uh, really at the right level for the NATO audience, because not only did it um, provide the technological and the strategic context, but it has some really practical uh, recommendations. Uh, one thing that really caught my attention was uh, facilitating a way for the nations, both NATO and EU, to come together and address the challenges that are faced by 5G. The nations are going to migrate towards 5G in the coming months and years, and they're doing going to do it at different rates. But there's got to be a way, at least at the technical level, for nations to come together and solve some of these technical challenges, particularly in our space on military interoperability associated with 5G. And I think the recommendation to have both NATO and EU working together in particularly at the technical level makes a lot of sense. The other thing that caught my attention was really at the end, the principled approach. And I really like these uh, sub bullets that the authors provided because a principled approach for the nations uh, always resonates well, and we can all agree because we share values across NATO nations. And uh, I, I think that was uh, well well thought through and, and, and a good way to approach uh, the challenges. Based on this first reflection, the discussion went further on the feasibility of author recommendation, notably by exposing differences between EU and NATO approach on 5G security concern. At the core of all modern warfare today is communication, secure communications. 
And this is why we worry about cybersecurity. It's why we worry about interoperability of national systems uh, across the alliance. These are our, uh, our daily challenges, and we're thinking about these sorts of uh, these issues all the time, as opposed to the economic or acquisition challenges that perhaps the EU is focused on. It's a transatlantic issue, and we want to make sure that NATO nations, both uh, in North America and Europe, can work together. And at the military level, there's interoperability and security uh, provided. The security side might resonate more with, uh, with NATO than perhaps the EU. Remember, when we discuss 5G, the conversation goes often by discussing Chinese companies. Especially during this interview, news intention was focusing on United Kingdom announcement to reconsider any use of system integrating Huawei-only technology by 2027. I'm not a politician and I don't want to comment on those decisions. Uh, from a technical perspective, uh, I think it's best if Europe and North America have um, used vendors that, it, uh, that share its values and um, uh, we, uh, we have trust in the supply chain. Uh, and where the information is going and how it's being used. As long as the nations can agree on that, then I, I, I think at the technical level, we're in good shape. Terry asked him how the coordination with EU could enable to get everyone on board, since NATO consensus rule requires at one point as well EU to have an agreed position on the 5G topic. The interoperability and uh, the consensus across NATO nations in North American uh, and, and European is what we focus on and NCIA is focused on. Obviously, there's a lot of overlap in the nations between EU and, and NATO, and these issues tend to resolve themselves because of that overlap. What we do in um, the NATO Communications Information Agency are multinational, what we call multinational programs. And uh, that's where we find nations that want to resolve a particular technical problem. We bring them together, and we're kind of a catalyst to to help uh, solve those challenges at, a, at the technical level. In the paper, uh, the, the section on leveraging membership, I think is really key. Um, and I know it talks about EU and, and, and Europe uh, or, or NATO, um, but we have to keep North America, we have to keep the transatlantic um, angle in there as well. So NATO is a natural place to make sure that the, the transatlantic uh, Europe and North America is brought together into a coherent uh, process. So, according to him, the SFAGI is really a key military communication technology that NCIA will focus on. Yes, I think it's inevitable because um, nations are going in this direction and for us to keep pace with and remain relevant with the technology and with the nations, Uh, we will be involved in it by default. But it requires investment. It requires uh, some strategy and some uh, technical expertise in NATO. Uh, we have the technical expertise. We clearly have the strategy. What we still need to do is invest in some of these interoperability challenges. We need to make some investments to maintain our expertise and uh, over the next five plus years. 
I can see direct investments by NATO to use 5G and to uh, transition our current infrastructure to a faster communications infrastructure. This is at the core of modern warfare, and it's at the core of modern consultation amongst our allies and amongst uh, the diplomats that represent them here. Uh, so I'm certain 5G will play a role in the years ahead for NATO. Since 5G technology is considered to play a role in the future as a cutting-edge technology, does Kevin Sheld consider that NATO made it to collect information needed? I have a, a little bit of a philosophy to these cutting-edge technologies when it comes to NATO. NATO is a rather frugal organization. We spend in a year what the Pentagon spends in a day. The total funding for NATO is 2.4 billion euros, and that's for the entire year. And the Pentagon spends about 2.5 billion per day. As a leading procurer of technology for NATO, I don't necessarily want to always be procuring cutting-edge technology like 5G for the organization. I'd rather stay four or five years behind the technology, quite frankly, and let uh, the United States and other nations make the expensive mistakes first. And then I take advantage of those lessons learned and we can save money then for NATO taxpayers. As wise, it was also interesting to have this point of view on our women representation and expertise recognition within NATO evolved these past years. Coming out of the United States, I'd say that NATO as an organization still lags behind at least North America uh, in terms of professional women in the workplace. I think NATO has done a very good job and is working hard at Uh, improving gender diversity in the organization and, and promoting uh, professional women. We're doing a better job at it. We have a long way to go. And NCIA, I think, has a, a unique challenge. Uh, as the kind of techno technology organization for NATO, we struggle to find professional women in the, in the technology area, in the engineering uh, areas. We have some excellent professional women in our ranks, but not enough. And we struggled to attract that talent. We've done some self-reflection on this, and uh, we're looking at uh, where, where we advertise for jobs. Is there any kind of hidden bias in the way that we advertise for positions? Uh, are we creating an environment that is welcoming for professional women? Uh, do we offer the benefits and allowances and so forth? that uh, professional women are looking for in a career? You know, are we competitive in the marketplace? We have um, relatively good salaries, uh, but it's difficult to compete with uh, the Amazons and the Microsofts and the Googles uh, in the world. I'm glad to conclude this final episode of What's Next for NATO in a Digital Age with the French ambassador to NATO, Muriel Domenac, who kindly shared with us a thought on women roles in NATO with insights based on her own experience in male-dominated environments. Where NATO is doing better, uh, you would easily find there's women leadership. My female colleagues, like my UK colleague, for example, 
is very active in this uh, uh, respect, and you can tell from there from her delegation that she's uh, uh, she's been encouraging young women. Um, now the NATO leadership is still very masculine; it's men mostly. Wherever you see progress, it's thanks to uh, uh, women leadership, and and clearly Rose had been doing a lot. But it takes time, you know, before it goes up to uh, um, other, you know, higher layers. Yeah, I mean, Stoltenberg has a clear view of uh, gender balance as uh, uh, necessary. Um, for example, he made sure the reflection group that had been agreed in, in London, you know, uh, after uh, the French had insisted uh, we have to uh, uh, rethink and reconfirm the fundamentals of NATO. So that reflection group, um, Stoltenberg made sure um, was gender balanced. And he was absolutely firm on that, uh, regardless of uh, uh, some nations' uh, pressure. He has very strong views, yet in terms of the NATO top management, uh, we're not there yet, clearly. We're not. It's a long-term action, encourage women uh, at every stage, and then make sure when you choose people for the top management that gender balance is uh, uh, reflected. We're not there yet, clearly. When I was a young diplomat, I first started in in political military affairs thanks to uh, the encouragements of a woman that was always my mentor, uh, Salome Zourabishvili, uh, who was a French diplomat at the time in security affairs, and she's become now the president of Georgia. She was very supportive of uh, women and sort of uh, uh, gave me the strength and, and, and confidence. At that time, I have to say, I was a bit shocked that male diplomats would call her the men uh, we wish we were. I thought that was very machist. And then I, you know, I realized it's something about women when they're good at the negotiations, they achieve uh, results. They would be seen as tougher than uh, a man in the same position. And this is something you have to take into account when uh, you're a woman negotiator. You would easily be seen as, you know, tougher. And I guess uh, it's part of a, a, what a woman negotiator has to sort of integrate in her uh, uh, strategy. You know, a good negotiator would always save the face of uh, the other party. Well, for women, you have to take into account that uh, uh, if you achieve a result that's satisfactory to you, you'd rather not appear as having humiliated uh, your counterpart just for the sake of the other party seeing you as so such a tough person uh, if you've achieved results. So, I mean, we still have that sort of bias, if you see what I mean. Thanks for listening to this episode and our first podcast series. We hope you liked it. A special thanks to the WISE team, to our laureates, to our interviewees, and to our co-producers, Free Range Productions. Let us know what you thought on Twitter, at WISE Brussels, and on our other social media channels, Facebook and LinkedIn. And stay tuned for future podcasts.